Open up to Second Thess, uh, Second Corinthians. Um, Second Corinthians. <clears throat> We're going to be in the kind of the last part of Corinthians, Second um, Corinthians ten through thirteen. Um, but as I said last week, I want to want to argue that really all that Paul wants to say in Second Corinthians is kind of tucked away in kernel form in chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. So turn over to chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 12, and let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this morning. Um, it is slightly overcast, but it is a wonderful day because you have made it and you have given us a chance here to hear your word and to be changed by your eternal truth. We pray that you would give us new and fresh boldness in the gospel grace of hearing your word and having your ministers among us. I pray that we would boast in the things that we should boast in and we would be humble in the ways that we should be humble. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, let's read um, ch- chapter 1, verse 12 of Second Corinthians. <clears throat> For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness... And in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason for boasting, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just to remind you of where we've been, last week we talked about how Paul had a clear conscience in his ministry. And for the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians, he explains the the gospel grace that is his ministry. Notice, just for example and reminder, He describes his ministry in verse 12 as the grace of God, not by human wisdom, but in the grace or by the grace of God. If you were to describe all of Paul's ministry, it is simply described as grace. That is what Paul said to us. In the, in the first seven verses, essentially, I, I, my ministry is plain to you, it's clear, it's understandable. Um, <clears throat> but then, also, we, we saw last Thursday that Paul was eager for the Corinthian believers and for believers in general to experience the grace of God. We experience the grace of God in participating in his gospel ministry. So he's saying, here in the first seven chapters, right, here is the glory of the gospel ministry, and we walk through all of those, those points in which the New Testament gospel ministry is glorious. And then Paul shifted in, ver- in chapters 8 and 9 and started saying, hey, and we want you to be a part of this glorious ministry. Remember, he explained how the churches in Macedonia were a part of that glorious gospel ministry. They, even in their poverty, were rich in generosity. They were eager to do it because they wanted to participate in the ministry of the saints that was Paul's ministry. And, and, and Paul, Paul kind of says this as well, right? 
In, in chapter 1, verse 14, you are our boasting. And we want you to be our greater boasting. We've already boasted about your generosity, and we want you to kind of prove that you're back in the game, that you are back following and pursuing Christ Jesus, and you're not being fooled by false teachers anymore. And then you show that by your generous contribution, and, and we want to boast in you. That's what he says in verse 14. But, but today we, we will also see that Paul wants believers to boast or these Corinthian believers to boast in himself. Did you, did you see that in verse 14? Well, first off, Paul boasts of something in verse 12. But then in verse 14, he says, We are your reason for boasting, just as you are ours. We are your reason of boasting. There is a sense in which the Christian should boast in God's gracious work in them and to them. And what is God's work that the Christian should boast in? The, the work of the New Testament gospel minister. The, the believers should be thrilled about God's grace to them in the pastoral work that is among them. In a sense, and of course, Paul is talking about himself as an apostle, but he's also referring to anyone that brings the 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 apostolic truth to their church and to and encourages their church in obedience to that truth. So there is a sense in which, if I can say it this way, this is very odd to say this, but there is a sense in which we should be and you should be boasting in the grace of God that God has given you in your pastors. That's a very weird thing for me to talk about, obviously. But there's certain qualifications that those pastors must meet before you can boast in them. And that's kind of what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about what you are to boast in in your pastors that actually is a great defense mechanism uh, for false against false teachers. Now, now, real quick, before we kind of jump into that, let me just do a few things. Let me just summarize where we've been, and also let me give you an exhortation for why you should even listen to this message, if it's not apparent to you enough already. Just to summarize the background of the Corinthian church, we, we talked about this on Thursday night, but I'll repeat these points, right? Number one, sin makes you stupid. Sin had made the Corinthians stupid. And, and it's very ironic because they thought they were so great. They thought they had arrived spiritually. They were proud of all of their giftedness. They thought they didn't need Paul anymore. Sometimes sin makes you, makes you very foolish and stupid to the, the very things that you need most. Humble ministers, for one. They, they despised the ones they should have loved, and they loved the ones that they should have despised. They, they pursued after false teachers who stroked their egos and, and made them feel good instead of pursuing to obey and to learn from the apostle Paul who didn't always encourage them. Sometimes he had some hard truths for them that were difficult for them to hear. Sin makes you stupid. That's what we saw in the Corinthian church. Sin also keeps you out of the game, right? It keeps you from, uh, from abounding in good works, uh, sin keeps you from the joy of the Christian life. Sin, sin keeps you from all of these things. And we, we kind of saw this on Thursday a little bit. Sin had 
caused them to stop their joyful generosity to the Jerusalem fund. Sin had kept them from giving generously and experiencing the grace of the gospel. And sin does this in our life as well. Just to, just to read for you, chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, and it's not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. We are workers for your joy. Sin keeps you from joy because it keeps you from obedience, which produces joy and peace and satisfaction in your life. Sin keeps you out of the game, and that's why Paul wrote, you know, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We want you guys to get back in the game and to experience the gracious ministry of participating in the gospel ministry. Sin keeps you out of the game. Um, Just a a, a side illustration. This year, I don't know if you guys know this, but this year, I am turning 10 in marriage. Uh, Oh, yeah. We are celebrating our 10th year anniversary. And I can say absolutely with full conviction that the best years of married life, the most joy-filled years of married life, have probably happened at the end of these 10 years rather than the beginning. Because sanctification has increased in our life. My happiest seasons of marriage are when I'm most sanctified. And that's the same thing with anything in the Christian life. Your happiest times are the times when you're most sanctified, when you're most obedient to Christ Jesus, when you get to participate in the gospel ministry more instead of just always focusing on yourself. And that's what Paul was saying in the the middle chapters of 2 Corinthians. Sin is keeping you guys out of the game, and I want you guys to get back in the game. And we could also say this as well to kind of of bring us up to speed with where we are right now. Uh, Sin makes you vulnerable to false teachers. Sin deceives you about yourself, and then deceives you about what kind of minister you really should have in your life. Sin makes you think you are uh, invincible to spiritual danger and you can do anything you want. And you can be isolated from the body of Christ. That's what sin makes you do. And it makes you vulnerable to false teachers. And as Paul is writing here to the Corinthians, it's, it's not totally clear if, if he suspects that there's still false teachers among them or if there's a minority among them that are still kind of... Um, um, in agreement to these false teachers that are spreading rumors against Paul, it's, it's not totally clear. As a matter of fact, when we turn to chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, it seems as though there still is a great threat of false teachers among them. But maybe we could kind of explain it like this. Paul has seen that they're genuinely repentant. They've, they've come back to him. They've received, they've received the grace of God in his ministry. And now he wants to help them be more secure and not be duped by false teachers again. So he's going to kind of denounce false teachers, their motivations, their practices, and he's going to compare them to his own. So that's what we see in chapter 10 all the way through chapter 13. We see Paul defending his ministry and also denouncing the false ministry of these false teachers that are among us. So let me just jump to another slide here. Just to summarize, everything that Paul is exhorting them to in the letter, uh, the second letter to the Corinthians, first exhortation is receive God's grace. That is the first seven chapters. Receive us, receive God's grace. Number two, experience God's grace. That is, participate in the gospel ministry through your generous giving to the Jerusalem Fund. And then number three, 
boast in God's grace. Boast in God's grace. How do you defend yourself against what is false? False teachers, false teaching, by knowing and loving and enjoying what is true. And so Paul wants to kind of explain the true ministry of the gospel versus these false ones. And that's what we're going to look at here today. And, and real quick, before we do, I want to answer one question. Why am I dragging you through 2 Corinthians for a whole week? Why do we have to talk about these things? They seem to be more applicable to me and not to you, right? But I've intentionally structured kind of the way I break down the letter in a way that's very, very applicable to you and why I think you need to hear this. You need to hear about the true gospel ministry because you need to know the real thing because there's lots of artificial and false ones out there in the world. And and another reason why you need to listen to this message is I, I don't believe that a pastor is supposed to be kind of someone who is better than all the rest. But a pastor, an elder, is supposed to be someone who is an example of what all of us should strive to be, right? So when you hear about what a, what a true minister is, as, as, as Paul kind of explains his ministry, as you hear about what a true minister is, you see what, in, in a sense, to a certain limit, you're also called to be. And I've intentionally kind of structured this, this, this message today for, in points that you could easily apply to your life. So this is kind of what you are called to be in, in that it's also supposed to be what a leader is called to be. And then one other reason for why you should listen to this message. I truly believe that we in the church need to work on having right attitudes towards leadership. Now, there's, there are lots of reasons to be suspicious of spiritual leadership in our day, for sure, because there's lots of error, there's lots of imposters, there's lots of false teaching out there, and we should be guarded, for sure. But we should also have a right attitude towards the real thing. We should, we should have this, in a sense, boasting in, in God's grace among us through our qualified leaders. I love what Paul says to the Thessalonians in, in, the, in 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. Brothers, we urge you... No, that's not, not it. I'm trying, I'm trying to preach out of this, which is very confusing because I haven't read out of this, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's actually 5.12. We ask you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. We, we ask you that you, you know them. You understand who they are, what they are about, why they do what they do, and your, their benefit to you. And then he says in verse 13, that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. That's what, we, that's what our attitude should be towards the real thing, towards genuine ministers of the gospel. We should regard them very highly. That's, once again, this is a, an uncomfortable sermon for me to preach. But I'm not trying to preach about me as much as I'm trying to preach for you, for your benefit, so you know for the rest of your life how you are to think about the true gospel ministry. You're, you're to regard them highly. That is a word that speaks of an extremely high degree. You could translate it. You could translate it, hold them up to an extraordinary degree of regard, right? And, and once again, that's not because of who they are or their personality or their, their giftedness or their skill, but because they work for you, for the word, and for your joy in 
obedience. They work. They lead you in love. In a sense, we come back to 2 Corinthians, to the basic exhortation here of boast in the grace of God. We should have an attitude to some extent of boasting in God's grace to us. We want to be careful with that word boasting because it's often misused. But as I will point you out in verse 12, Paul speaks of it himself. We want you to boast in us as our boast is in you. And I think what I mean by boasting is you should rightly esteem. You should hold them in proper position in your mind and heart. You should defend yourself against imposters because you love the real thing so much. So let's, let's just get into it real quick. I've got a, a few points on who is the true minister of the gospel. Who is the true minister of the gospel? Um, next slide. Boast in God's grace. There you go. La, la, la. Uh, the marks of a true gospel ministry. I'm terrible with slideshows, apparently. Um, number one, he is one who carries... God's truth. Jump over to chapter 10. He carries God's truth. Now, if you were to read through chapters 10 through 13, you'd see Paul doing a lot of things. And the reason why it's kind of choppy is because it's an emotional letter. Do you ever write emotional letters? Do you ever write emotional texts? Sometimes Sometimes the thing that comes next maybe doesn't necessarily make sense, but it does make sense when you're reading it in context. Sometimes it's a little bit choppy. So Paul kind of jumps back and forth between explaining himself and explaining these ministers because he's very emotional. He's very very serious about the, the danger that is involved here. And, and he does do a bit of describing of the, these false teachers, these super apostles, which is probably him ironically referring to them as maybe how they refer to themselves. They think they are superior to Paul himself. These false teachers, he, he describes them as deceived and as deceivers. That is who is in the church in Corinth. They are deceived, you could say, about themselves. They are deceived about themselves. Verse 12, he says in chapter 10, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. They are deceived about themselves, and they're deceived about themselves because they do not view themselves through the truth of Scripture, but they simply want to view themselves in comparison to other people. Oh, look at I've definitely got something going spiritually. I'm better than that person, so you should follow me. That is how they understand and interpret themselves. And did you notice? It's because they are without understanding. They are deceived about themselves because they are deceived about what is true, where they get their authority. They don't have the authority of God's word. They are deceived about it. Matter of fact, in chapter 2 of chapter chapter 10, verse 2 of chapter 10, they are trying to argue that Paul works according to the flesh. They are so deceived about the truth that they think Paul is working according to the flesh and they are truly spiritual. They are deceived in themselves because they're deceived by the truth. But also we see something even more staggering and frightening in in chapter 11, verses 13. They are deceived by, ultimately, Satan. 
Such men are false apostles, Paul writes in verse 13 of chapter 11. Deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his ministers also disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. That's a very important verse in our world today, isn't it? Is your only basis for determining who a pastor is the fact that he looks really good on the outside and he's really fun to listen to? Do you know who your greatest enemy of your soul is? He's really good at speaking and deceiving. No, it has to be according to truth, not according to outside measures. There's a sense here, right, when we see how they're deceived by Satan, we, we should kind of have pity on false teachers a little bit, but it should be a pity with incredible care, as we saw in Jude 23, right? Be careful that you do not get trapped while having pity on some. They are deceived, we see, but these men are also deceivers. And this is where Paul gets descriptive as well. Chapter 10, verse 12, they compare themselves. They want to keep you focused on their external attributes and not on their heart, not on their motivations. Um, Chapter 11 and verse 12, they like titles, but they don't like to work. He wants to cut off their opportunity for boasting in his boasting of not taking any money. No, they just want the title, the position, the, the money that comes with the title, but they don't actually want to work. And, and this is the most frightening part. Turn over to chapter 11, verses 19. They are cruel. They are cruel in their treatment. And Paul here is being a little sarcastic. For you, being so wise are bearing the foolish gladly. For you, bear it. If anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. And Paul's saying, in, in context here, he's saying, will you bear with me if I kind of talk about uh, me a little bit here and explain to you my ministry. I hate to do this because I hate to speak about myself, but I know you guys can take it because you bear so well with fools. You bear it if people do all of these things to you. Now notice, they were accusing Paul of doing those same things to them. But they couldn't bear it from him. Why? Because he did not make them feel good about themselves. They bore it from these men because These men told them truths that they, in their heart, wanted to hear. You're powerful, you're spiritual, you can have it all. You can have money, you can have wealth, if you just follow me. They were cruel, though, in their treatment. Just look at that language. Takes advantage of you, devours you, enslaves you, hits you in the face. But no, the the minister of the gospel carries God's truth. Look how boldly in chapter 10 Paul speaks about how he carries God's truth. He carries weapons. He refers to God's truth as a powerful weapon in verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly 
but divinely powerful for tearing down strongholds. He's referring to the truth of God's word there. But notice how he describes these weapons. These are weapons that have great power. They are truth that destroys strongholds. What is, the, what is the stronghold that the truth of the New Testament gives us? It destroys the stronghold of pride. They tear down, verse 5, speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, right? That's what the truth of God's word does to you. It says, you have nothing to offer to God, and he gives it to you all by his grace. That's not a very pleasing message to our pride, is it? But that's what the truth of the gospel does. It is a a message, and our words are words of great power because they destroy pride. They also have great effect, as I said in verse 5. The truth of God takes captive, destroys, but also takes captive minds and hearts to the word of God. I'll keep reading in verse 5. Tear down speculations, every lofty thing raised up against God, and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what the truth of God in the hand of the minister does. It takes thoughts captive. It says, if you are going to follow Christ, this is how you must think about your life and about this world and about God. That is what the truth of God does. It has great effect. So it has great power. It has great effect. Their weapons also have great authority. Verse 6, we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is fulfilled. The truth of God brings discipline, brings correction, brings punishment sometimes when you are untrue to it. And it's not that the the pastor is kind of speaking out of his own opinion about what that discipline or punishment should be. He's simply saying, this is who the Bible says you are when you are walking in disobedience. And this is what the Bible says we must do when you are walking in disobedience. But I want you to notice something. These weapons have great power, great effect, great authority. They also have great precision. It's not necessarily that Paul views his power as, as a WMD that just blows up everything and destroys, destroys, destroys. That's not the pastoral ministry. I come here, I, I throw a, you know, a hand grenade into the audience and let it just destroy you and you guys are all dismembered. That is not the gospel ministry. Because look what he says in verse 8. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for tearing you down, I will not be put to shame. Notice, the truth of the gospel builds up. These are powerful weapons to build up, but they're also powerful weapons of precision to get at sin and reveal hearts. It's, it's not a WMD. It's a weapon of an MD, a medical doctor who is going in there seeing a serious disease taking control of the body and providing spiritual, powerful, effective surgery for your spiritual good. That seems to be what Paul is explaining here. Yes, the truth, the truth that is preached can sometimes be very hard to hear. Very hard to hear. But it also is life-saving. It diagnoses your true heart issue in everything that you do. And it provides help. That is the power that the true gospel minister carries. But let's look at another um, descriptive. The true gospel minister, he is also one who is gentle. Now this is a point that I 
want to intentionally link intentionally link did I misspell it? Okay, thank you. Uh, Gentile, you know, they're Gentile. Um, They're also gentle. I I spelled it right in my notes. I don't know why the computer misdid it. All right, um, he is one who is gentle. Of course, this goes back to verses of 12, chapter 1, right? We, we were among you with simplicity and godly sincerity. We were, the, we, were, we, were, we were the same thing. We were not secret in our intentions or our desires. We were genuine. We were transparent with you. But, but notice all, also in, in chapter 10, in verse 1, how Paul begins this whole defense of his authority. Now I, Paul, myself, plead with you by the gentleness and forbearance of Christ. I am who I, am who, I who am humble when face to face with you, but courageous towards you when absent, or so they accuse him. Notice, all of this, all of this power, all of this strength in the truth of God's word is done with the spirit of gentleness that comes from Christ Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 1, by the gentleness and forbearance of Christ. These two things are coming from Christ, and they control the gospel minister. They control the gospel ministry. Now, I want to tell you a little anecdote, because I think it's helpful. Sometime, sometimes our, our very own Pastor Steve preaches from the pulpit truths that are very hard for our hearts to hear, right? And it, it sounds It sounds fierce. It sounds frightening. It's terrifying at a time. And I also, I see him do that. But then I also see how he interacts with individual people. I even see how his attitude is often when he is sharing those hard things, he is very gentle. When I see him in counseling appointments, I see one of the most gentle men I've ever met. He's very kind and caring. And I'd also say this about MacArthur too. I I will always remember the day Believe it or not, I will always remember the day when I was in a communion service. And at, and at uh, Grace Community, the communion service is also sometimes when church discipline happens. And, and I remember thinking he was acting a little strange. It was almost like he was hesitant. It was almost like he was reluctant. As, as the, the elements were being passed around and it was coming back to him to, to announce the, the action of church discipline, I saw him look over to the right to see if somebody was signaling to him to kind of indicate to not do something or not. And and I've heard this story about him often where he is very reluctant to actually announce church discipline to the point where he's going up to preach on Sunday morning. He's like, did the man show up? Did he come? Does he want to repent? He's very reluctant to because he's very gentle even with truth. And that's what Paul is saying here. Even when we are harsh and strong and what it feels like harsh, we do this all in the spirit of Christ with gentleness and forbearance. But this is not what the false teachers do. We saw this in chapter 11, verse 19 and 20. Remember remember their treatment. Um, they, um, Augustine once explained the difference between a true and false teacher this way, and I thought it was interesting, and it kind of made me think about it a little bit differently. Severity is ready and eager to find faults and punish. It's ready and eager because it wants to find faults and punish. But charity, this is Augustine, is reluctant to discover faults which it must 
punish. Now that's very interesting. It doesn't sound like what Paul was explaining himself to be in chapter 10 when he talked about the weapons of his warfare. But, but think about it this way. Paul was never reluctant to bring truth, but he was also very careful to not destroy the, the objects of his ministry at the same time. He was never reluctant to bring truth. He was always eager to use truth because he wanted the Corinthians to be sanctified. Matter of fact, he's slow in coming to them, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. He, he's hesitant to come to them because he wants them to respond correctly to his words so that he doesn't have to come in chapter 13 and use very strong measures to bring about their repentance. He wants them to repent by his words so he doesn't have to come in his presence and be severe. Why? Because he is gentle. Paul is very much in this letter like a parent who is not just eager to discipline, but is eager to protect and save and help and strengthen their children to become stronger for their own good. And this is the gospel ministry that I see all throughout the Apostle Paul's life. 1 Thessalonians 2.7, he says, We were gentle among you like, nur- like a nursing mother. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, the elder is not to be violent, but gentle. Second Timothy 2.25, even with his opponents, you are to rebuke with gentleness. So the, the spiritual shepherd holds divine truth and is not ashamed of divine truth. This truth can be frightening to the disobedient and unruly. But it's really for protection. It's really for safety. It's because the spiritual shepherd wants to care for the sheep and protect them. And, and this is always the effect of harsh truth, strong truth, difficult truth. It produces a softness of heart. Now, soft truth produces a hardness of heart. But truth does the opposite. Next, who is the gospel minister? He is also one who is persistent. And this is just something you see uh, throughout chapters 11 and, and 12. And I'm, I'm working hard to summarize here. <laughs> Paul is going to talk about himself. Chapter 11, verse 1. Um, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed, you are bearing with me. And of course, then he kind of explains himself a little bit. And this leads him to verses 21 of chapter 11, um, where he's continuing, or 20 of chapter 11. Please bear with me, bear with me. You're good at bearing with people. So I'm sure you can bear with me if I boast about myself a little bit. And then there's that famous passage there, beginning in verse uh, 21, really, but, but 22 in earnest, right? Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's seed? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. And then he goes on to list all of these things that we may not totally associate with strength, as like apostolic credentials, but Paul seems to find great weight in them. And the first thing I want to talk about in this list that he gives you of all the hardships he's gone through is his persistence. The true minister is known because they are persistent, because they genuinely love the flock. They do not leave the flock when danger arrives, and that's who Paul is. As a matter of fact, in the history of the Corinthian church in Acts, you, you see that Paul 
is having a difficult time with the Corinthians because their city is difficult, but he persists because he believes that he is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the false teachers are the opposite, right? They come to where times are easy, where hearts are easy to take captive and to take advantage of. But Paul sticks around even when it is hard and when it is difficult. He is persistent. You'll know them by their fruit. Do they stick with you when you are difficult? Do they pursue you when you are rebellious? That is, in all likelihood, a true minister of the gospel. Let's look at another point of the true gospel minister. Oh, sorry, Tate. Number three, is it frozen? He is persistent. Number four, number four, he is one who is humble. And and you'll notice this, even when Paul boasts in chapters 11 and chapter 12, it is always a boast in his weakness. That is what he is eager to boast about. Verse 30, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Now, does that mean Paul had nothing good that he could boast about? No strengths that he could commend himself by? He, he could have listed a lot of things. As a matter of fact, he hints at these things, so he kind of wants them to know about it, but he wants them to know his true heart of hearts is a very humble heart. For example, in, in chapter 11, verse 6, he refers to himself as skilled in knowledge. In chapters 12, 1 through 6, he refers to this vision, this vision of paradise where extraordinary revelations are given to him. Now, this is probably referring to his, 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 his period of time right after salvation when he, when he escaped to the, the area of Syria. But he, he expresses all of these things in the most humble way possible. He says, there was a man that I once knew that got transported into the third heavens. He had extraordinary experiences. He had performed powerful signs. Chapter 12, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were worked among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And this is one of the reasons why he is so shocked that they're asking for credentials of authority from him. I was with you and I showed you the true signs of an apostle. And you yourself, your own changed hearts are evidence that I reveal to you the true truth of God. He had lots of things that he could list. But instead, he seeks to boast in his wisdom. And, and the truth of the matter is, he, he, he boasted in his wisdom because he knew how truly dependent he was. And, and you will never be a humble person until you realize how truly dependent you are on God and on his grace. Paul knew the truth. He was, he was full of truth. And that is why he was so humble. And that is the key to knowing true humility too. Knowing who you are and who your God is and how much you depend on your God for strength. The goal, the goal as a servant of Christ for Paul was not to be impressive or to be necessarily loved but to have faith to have trust to have dependence on Christ and to be obedient to Christ that was that was his his goal as a servant of Christ that's that's what he was and his weakness helped him become a better servant because his weakness 
strengthened his faith in Christ and not himself. His, his weakness strengthened his trust in Christ and not himself. And his weakness showed him his dependence on Christ and his need for Christ and on, on himself. And ultimately, his obedience showed his love for Christ. The false teachers wanted to be measured by the outside, all that they had and all that they had done. Paul measured his faithfulness and strength spiritually on what he could go without. That was, that, was, that was Paul's spiritual credentials. Look at all the things that I can go without and be content, completely content in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm going to boast in. I'm going to boast in the strength of Christ through me. Matter of fact, this is one of the most beautiful verses. He's talking about this thorn in the flesh, that there is some confusion and debate. It's, it's not clear necessarily what this thorn was. If you want to, to focus on thorn, the word thorn in verse 7, it seems to be something physical in him. And some people are saying he had a, um, a blindness issue or he was a hunchback or had pain. That might have been true. But if you focus on the, the next word, a messenger of Satan, it seems as though the thorn in the flesh was a person probably in the Corinthian church causing trouble. Causing humility. Well, either one, you want to, either, whatever, however you determine what the thorn was, uh, we need to notice Paul's understanding of why the thorn was there. That is what is clear. Verse 9 Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, even when I begged with the Lord to remove that thorn. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, with insult, with distress, with persecutions, with hardships, for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? He's saying, all of these weaknesses show me how strong Christ is. Therefore, I'm going to boast in Christ's strength in my weakness. That is who a true minister of the gospel is, too. They can go without Many things. They can go through many things and be content in the sufficient supply of Christ for them in all of those things. But let's look at one more thing, one more characteristic of a true gospel minister. He is one who is desirous. Now, you, you also can tell a true gospel minister based on what they want, what they really, really want, what they wake up in the middle of the night and think about, what their prayers are like if they pray. You know them based on what they want, what they desire. Do they desire praise, fame, position, money, prestige, even from you? You will know them by that. But Paul wants to argue that what he most wants is the total and complete sanctification of the Corinthians themselves. This is what he says in verses 19 of chapter 12. All this time, you think we are defending ourselves to you. We speak in Christ in the sight of God, and all these things, beloved, are for your building up. It's all for you. It's for your obedience to be perfected, he says in 10.6. It's for you to be abounding in spiritual good and spiritual prosperity. That's what he was talking about in chapter 8, right? We want you to abound in all the graces of Christ 
that come to you through obedience. We want you to be abounding in peace, abounding in joy, and abounding in sanctification. False teachers are interested in themselves. True teachers are interested in you. Now, as Paul closes the letter, you you could just kind of see from verses 14 of chapter 12 till the end, really. He is just just sharing with them, this is what I want. This is what I desire for you. And we'll jump through them first, but let me quickly read chapter 12, verse 14. Here, for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children ought not to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will most gladly spend and be fully spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I loved less? And then if you were to read in verses 19 all the way down through verses 21, what does he desire? He desires that they truly show repentance, that they're truly repentant. That is what the gospel minister wants. He wants true repentance. And then in chapters 13, 1 through 2, the gospel minister wants a church that is purified, as he talks about discipline. And then in chapters three, uh, 13, 3 through 4, he, he wants a church that rightly esteems, that rightly holds their leaders in the right place, in the strength that Christ has. And then in chapters, chapter 13, 5 through 6, he wants them to be eager to examine themselves, to test themselves, to see if they are in the faith. Look at verse 5 of chapter 13. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Do you not recognize this about yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you unless you have failed the test, right? He wants the church to be thoughtful about themselves in a certain sense, to practice repentance and purification, but also to examine themselves. And this is, this is all for the, for the desire of their spiritual benefit, their joy, their fullness of joy in their obedience. He wants, as that benediction tells us and reveals to us in verse 11, their joy in rejoicing. He wants them to be restored. He wants them to be comforted. He wants them to be like-minded and live in peace. And also, the love of God and the peace that comes from God will be with them. When you are spiritually sanctified, the peace of God is with you in your life. And that, that word there, be comforted, that reminds us of the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, right? Where he's talking about the comfort that God supplies. Uh, that comfort comes from a right response to God's truth. Sp- spiritual comfort is, is the right listening to exhortation in your life. That is where true comfort comes from. And all of these things have a promise. The God of peace will be with you. This is what sanctification does. And this is what Paul wants the church to boast in the grace of God that is given to them through the true minister of the gospel. This is their source of peace. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for um, this moment that we can hear your word. And it's a, it's a tricky couple chapters, but 
We pray that it would be rich and helpful in our own minds and in our own hearts. And we thank you for it and for the blessing that comes through it. And we pray that you would be glorified in our hearts and in the obedience of them. That's what we want. We want to please you ultimately. And we want the peace that comes from you ultimately. We pray all this in in Jesus' name. Amen.